podcast from the Sunday night service at New Life Church. The Sunday night service reflects a desire to be rooted in the historic expressions of faith while engaging God with our whole being in the world today. For more information on New Life Church, you can visit our website at newlifechurch.org. Good evening, everybody. We are here, and as you know, we've been in the series talking about the supernatural, and this is really a a, a fun subject to wrestle with, uh, if we can be all right with that. And and every week I try to set it up by saying, look, there are things that we got to hold with a closed hand. Those are the things that we just recited together in the creed. What we believe about God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, those are things that are the core doctrines of our faith. Those things we're saying, look, those aren't up for discussion or debate. Those are things we hold, we believe, we hang on to. But then there's lots of other things that there's room for some discussion and for some wrestling. And I I try to make a point to, to always clarify responsible discussion. Because sometimes we, you know, we're free to freely offer opinions, but it's not always a responsible opinion. It's just sort of hearsay or rumors, or you have strong opinions, but you don't know why you hold them. And so for some of you, this series has been an opportunity to say, okay, why do you believe that? Why do you think that way about the supernatural? And for others of you, this has been sort of a, that's interesting. I've never quite heard it said that way before, and I kind of, I'm glad, and I want to explore that more. Or maybe this has just whet your appetite for more uh, research or study and all of that. And that's a good, good thing. We started in week one ta- talking about this question, what is it that God has done for us? And really, at the heart of it, setting it up in week one, what we've said is, look, the question we've got to try to answer before we get into the subject is, what is it that we believe about God? What's true about Him? Is it true that he's sort of distant and indifferent from our suffering and kind of says, woo too bad for you? Is that the stance that we take? Or is it that God's sort of saying, okay, look, no, look, I just want to give you everything you want and everything you ask for. And I'm just kidding. What is it that we believe to be true about God? And in week one, if you, haven't, if, you, if you weren't here that night, I would encourage you to download the podcast for the Sunday night service because we set up what is sort of the big picture context for this. And we said, look, in the very beginning, it was not God's design for the world to break down and for there to be sickness and disease and suffering. It wasn't his design. He didn't build it in to creation. And and we also know that it's not his final outcome. When we look at this picture, the sneak picture that, that John gives us in Revelation, this picture of what heaven's like, where there's no more death and no more tears and no more pain, we say, okay, so that's not our final outcome. We also know that it was somehow because of our sin, we opened the door and everything started to break down because sin is destructive. And whether it's our sin specifically or just the sin of humanity in general, nothing in the world works the way it was designed. What a heartbreaking picture we saw of that, we've seen of that over in, re- in recent weeks over in Haiti. That something, everything about this world is broken. It needs to be remade. But we also said that, look, that's exactly what Jesus has done. That God's answer to the quote-unquote problem of pain is not like a college professor's answer to it. It's not this theorem on a board to say, now let's see, how can a good God who's all-powerful? It's not a philosophical question for him. What God decided to do in response to suffering is to enter into it. That God in Jesus came into our world, knows what it's like to have his body uh, bruised and broken and beaten. 
He knows what it's like to weep for a friend who's died. He knows what it's like to feel the the pain of scorn or abuse. He understands it. But more than entering into our suffering, we talked about how Jesus has come to defeat it, to overcome it. And he says that, look, because of my life and death and resurrection, because of that, we have hope for the restoration of all things. Isaiah's vision of Messiah was that, that one day he would come and by his stripes the whole world would be healed, healed in the largest possible scope of that word. Everything would be set right again. And we know that that's begun. It's already begun to work itself out. We also know that that kingdom, though it has come already, it is not yet. We talked about the tension in the New Testament that Paul and other writers say, look, here we are, we have this, but yet we long for the fullness, the culmination of it, and how it is a little bit like Christmas Day or maybe early December when there's a present that your son knows that you've bought for him or your daughter and says, no, Dad, you paid for that present, right? That's right, I paid for your new bike, you know. Well, I received my bike today. But it's not Christmas. Yeah. But I receive it. I believe that you paid for it. No, I did pay for it. Well, then I receive it. But it's not Christmas Day. And there's this tension that we believe that, that, that yes, it's true that Jesus has paid and made the way for all of this. But it is all coming. It's unfolding in its fullness and will culminate one day in heaven. We believe that. So we're not under any illusions that, we've, that we've, we get the remade world right now. But what's interesting is, and we're going to talk about this tonight and for the next several weeks, is we're part of the remaking. We get to participate in bringing the kingdom life on the earth. Well, the week after that, week two, we talked a little bit about what we're supposed to do and the persistent widow and this idea of of being willing to ask and keep asking, not because we think God is unjust, but precisely because we believe he's good. Because we believe in his goodness, we, we keep coming. We keep coming like kids that keep coming to the parents that they love and trust and say, okay, I'm just going to keep, Lord, please help, 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 help. In week three, we talked about faith, this issue of faith. I think it's so ironic that there's a faith movement out there, and yet every, they could not be more wrong about what they're telling us about faith. And they've taught us to believe in a fantasy world and called it faith. Do you know every time the New Testament talks about faith, the object of it is always God? That when there's a preposition that follows the word faith in the New Testament, it's the preposition in, faith in God. And yet what we're inundated with by Christian preachers sometimes on TV and on radio is faith for, faith for. And if you had enough faith for this, then you can have this. And yet everything the New Testament writers show us is it's always faith in Faith in, faith in God. Moreover, the way the New Testament, the whole of the New Testament describes faith is is faith is this confidence in God's character that leads us to surrender. And if that's true, which it is, then the measure of my faith is not how many prayers I get answered, but how willing I am to surrender to God. Now that turns it all on its head, doesn't it? Because we've been so conditioned to think about faith and talk about faith in terms of results. Even in our secular culture, when you use the word believe, I believe that this team is going to win the Super Bowl. I believe, we just want to believe again. 
and all of our belief is always tied up in a specific result, right? And that's why our belief so often ends up in disappointment. Listen, if we don't fix the way we talk and think about faith, a whole generation is going to grow up and leave church because they've come to realize that that version of faith and belief is simply not true. That not everything you put your hope and expectation and belief towards is going to happen. That life is full of disappointments and disillusionments. But there is one who will never fail. And his name is God. And he is the one that our faith is always in. That's what we talked, we hopefully covered some of that last week via video. We heard some of that from Pastor Brady. And tonight, we want to move into this question of Miracles. With all of that as our backdrop, now we're going to say, well, what about the miraculous? What about that? What does it mean to believe in miracles? What does it mean to expect a miracle, as a famous healing evangelist once said? What does it mean to live like that, to hope like that? As some of you probably think, well, why are we even talking about this? I mean, aren't miracles just kind of the, you know, like sort of icing on the cake? Like it's just sort of fun if you have it, but fine if you don't, you know? I mean, isn't this just sort of fluffy, froofy, you know, Christian stuff that I don't really need to care about? I mean, why not do a study on Romans? You know, why not talk about justification? Well, we did actually last year, but, but you know, the, and we sort of have this perception that the, the, mirac- the miraculous is, is Oh, it's just kind of peripheral and it's frou-frou and it's just, you know. Or maybe you have the other view that says, yes, the miraculous. I mean, miracles happened every day in the Bible. I mean, wasn't it true that they just got up in the morning and like, you know, saw food coming down from the sky? And it was, I mean, wasn't every day just one giant miracle after another? And how come we don't have that today and miracles should be the norm? So you have one camp that says miracles are frills and fluff and the other camp that says miracles should be the norm this is meat and potatoes and what we're going to try to do is navigate a path that's somewhere in the middle of that you know it it, it is and let me comment on the first camp I'll comment on that later but let me talk first about this idea this impression that we have that in the bible times miracles happened every day you know our stories of the old testament cover a period of time of about 2500 years And if you were to plot out miracles on a timeline, you would find that a surprising density of miracles happened around Moses and Elijah. And then there's a few that are peppered throughout. There's some with Daniel. And depending on your definition of miracles, there's probably some with David with his victory over Goliath and all this, you know, so there's... But the highest density of miracles, the most dramatic ones, the the Red Sea and the plagues and the stuff falling from the heaven, all of that's connected to Moses. The other dramatic miracles with the axe heads and the lepers and all this stuff is Elijah. Which is why when Jesus shows up and starts doing miracles, they're stunned. They're paying attention. In fact, it's precisely because miracles were not the everyday norm that when Jesus showed up doing miracles, everybody said, whoa, who's this guy? In fact, that might even be the reason why on the Mount of Transfiguration, who's up there with Jesus? Moses and Elijah, the two most supernatural prophets of the Old Covenant. So this, there's something to dispel about our notion that, oh, wasn't it just everyday occurrences and it was just normal? I mean, nobody had to like farm or raise animals. If they wanted to eat, they just said, meat, and it appeared. You know, they said, water, and it appeared, you know, whatever. No. 
Okay, so we've got we've to have a correct picture about this. At the same time, is it fair to say that miracles are just kind of frilly, foofy stuff? Before I answer that, let me give us a working definition for a miracle. I'll give you two, just because. In C.S. Lewis's book, Miracles, which is actually not so much about miracles as we think about, but just the idea of could there be a supernatural thing that works into our natural world, fascinating, heady read, but he gives this definition. He says, a miracle is an interference with nature by supernatural power. Sort of a broad, general definition of it. An interference with nature by a supernatural power. For our purposes tonight, we can go a little more specific than that, and we'll say it this way. A miracle is a divine invasion into human affairs. It's God breaking in to human affairs. Now, when you say it that way, a miracle is not really frilly, froofy, peripheral. It's actually quite central to the Christian belief system. Now think about this. If you were to take a, a, a belief system like Islam or Hinduism and say, I'm going to remove from that belief system any incident of the miraculous. Well, if you did that with Islam, you'd be left with a lot of strict rules. If you did that with Hinduism, you'd be left with a lot of practices. But if you do that with Christianity, you're stuck. Because what do you do with the incarnation, the virgin birth, the resurrection? Do you see that our Christian faith is predicated on this belief that God breaks in to human history? We of any religion in the world believe that in a God who decides to not be distant. I think that's remarkable. And I think, I think we forget that and we think, oh, well, isn't Christianity also just about moral teaching and isn't Jesus just a moral teacher? And is, you know, listen, it's far more than that. What Christianity proposes to offer you is not just a good set of rules, not a good uh, you know, set of practices and habits. What Christianity proposes to offer us is the miracle of a transformed life. And that transformed life happens because of the miracle of a resurrected Savior who happens to also be the miracle of God becoming flesh who came because of the miracle of a virgin birth. We can't do without miracles and talk about Christianity. Do you see that tonight? That this is not something that's, oh, it's just, it's just peripheral. You know? No, it's not. Our faith, in fact, is predicated, is built on this belief that God breaks into human history. We believe fundamentally that our God breaks into human history. An interesting side note on this. In a sense, you could say all other religions are sort of shaped by man's search for God. But you notice how the Jewish Christian story begins? With God's search for man. What's the very first question God asks? Adam, where are you? Isn't that fascinating? That our faith story doesn't begin with us trying to find God. It begins with God trying to find us. Wow! A God who cares enough to look, to find, to search, and then to break in to our stories. That's remarkable. So when we talk about miracles tonight, we're not talking about a God who's distant, that we've got to twist his arm and say, God, please break it. It's the God who's already looking. No sooner had Adam sinned than God was saying, I'm looking. Where are you? Adam, where are you? 
I'm looking to break into your life. Don't walk away. That's the God we're talking about. So in the life of Jesus, this comes to its shining culmination. In the life of Jesus is God fully breaking in, breaking through to the human story. And and miracles in the life of Jesus are interesting for that very reason. In fact, in the... the, um, Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they, they use this, this Greek word dynamis or dunamis to talk about power, to demonstrate sort of the inbreak of God's reign. And Jesus' miracles in those in the Synoptic Gospels show, Jesus' miracles show the inbreaking of the reign of God into history. Kind of saying, hey, this is my reign, this is how I want it to be, and it's breaking into history. John's Gospel give us, gives us another angle on it. Instead of John using the word dunamis or dynamis, he uses the word erga for the works of Jesus. And what John means to demonstrate, whereas Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very intent on showing that Jesus' miracles are the inbreaking of God's kingdom and God's rule, the reign of God, John is saying, look, every time Jesus does a work, a, a miracle, a supernatural work, John's intent on showing us that that demonstrates that God's at work in him. Jesus' miracles show that God is at work in him. They do two things when we see it. They show us the inbreaking of God's reign and they show us that God is at work in Jesus. Well, that's all well and good, you say, but what's the point? Is this a magic show? Is this a circus trick? Was Jesus just sort of the most popular guy to have at parties? At one particular party, at least, he was. <laughs> he did pretty good at that one. But what is the purpose of miracles? I think, first of all, we have to wrestle with this statement to produce faith. There were certainly times in the Gospels where Jesus' miracles produced faith. I'll read you just a couple of scriptures. John two twenty three. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. In other words, they saw it and they said, okay, we're going to believe. John six fourteen. after the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. And Jesus is like, yeah, I've been trying to tell you that. So they are getting it. But I used to hear... Um, Certain faith preachers or teachers say this phrase. They would say, a miracle settles the issue. And they would always say, they would sort of talk down to the theology students or the seminary profs and say, oh, you guys, and you're learning, all they need is a miracle, and a miracle will settle the issue. I would like to show you just a few instances where a miracle for Jesus didn't settle the issue. John 12, verse 37 even, even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. Remarkable, isn't it? But maybe the story that's most amazing is this one, Luke 22, verse 50. This is them arresting Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's there, and Peter, John tells us that it's Peter. For some reason, John likes to tattle on Peter a lot. They might have had a little... But Luke doesn't name him, I don't think. But, but, but yeah, okay, so, so what happens is, and one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. It's Peter. And Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. And then Jesus said to the chief priest, the officers of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him, am I leading a rebellion that you've come with swords and clubs? Now, how does the rest of the story unfold? They arrest him. 
I mean, think about this, right? I think we, uh, we have this notion of like, look, a miracle will produce faith. Sometimes it does. And so we think, well, if we could just see the miraculous, then there would be no more skeptics. There'd be no more debating with atheists. There would be no need to be intelligent Christians. There'd be no, we could just have lobotomies and miracles. Miracles and lobotomies. Because once we have miracles, nobody needs to think anymore. But here's this guy whose ear is healed. And they say, oh, thank you very much. Now come with us. I'm sorry? Did you just say, he healed your ear? Right. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. (laughs) I love that. And so there are these moments where the miraculous occurs, and yet they don't change. They don't change. I think then we say, okay, well, so it is there to produce faith, but what else? You say, ultimately, maybe a miracle is there to point to God. It's to point to God. And, and I, I think there's, there's a way of noticing that pursuing God and pursuing miracles are not always the same thing. It doesn't always happen at the same time. Matthew 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And then I'll tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. Matthew 24, verse 24, for false Christ and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect. That's talking about us, the chosen, not our elected servants. If that were possible, see, I have told you ahead of time. And so Jesus is kind of saying, look, there's a way that you can get caught up following the miracles and yet missing God. So, well, how does that happen? If a miracle's purpose is to point to God, how is it that we could possibly make that mistake? Well, it happens all the time. In fact, have, you know, I've lived in Colorado Springs nine and a half years now. I love this city. This is a, what a beautiful city, Right. And I, I, it's just this, I drive out every day and look at Pikes Peak, and it's just unbelievable. Once in a while, we'll go and, and go to Garden of the Gods, and, and I, I'm still, you know, taken away by it. But have you ever seen tourists at Garden of the Gods? They're always taking pictures by the sign. And the sign is like by the road, you know, like you turn in, there's that sign that says welcome, you know, and there's the field on the left, right? And it, but if you, you got to keep going, and then inside the park, it's like, oh, it's amazing. But all the tourists, they, they're at the sign, Garden of the Gods, you know, and they take the picture. It's like, we're here, we're Garden of the Gods. The sign, we love the sign. Like, what's with the sign? The park's in there. You see where I'm going? I think this happens to us all. We want the miracle. God, we want the miracle. God, we want the miracle. Yes, we want the miracle. But ultimately, the miracle is a sign. And what do signs do if not point to something else? And the reason we want this is because we want it to point to God. We're not pursuing miracles. We're pursuing God. And when the miraculous comes as a result of that, because it will, and signs and wonders do follow those who believe, then all it does for us is say, that's right. I've already been seeing it. Thank you, sign, for confirming. It's almost like when you're driving to a destination and it says Denver, three miles. You're like, yep, I know, I'm headed there. All it does is confirm where you're already going. It's not there to stop and camp out and take a picture. That's not what a sign is for. What about today? 
Do miracles happen today? Are they for today? I mean, there's definitely a lot of respected believers who say, you know, that was for an age, that was for a time. And, uh, and, and you know, if you happen to live at the particular junction of history where God was doing something, then you're going to see, you know, heaps and heaps of miracles. And if you're not, then, you know, actually, C.S. Lewis alludes to that in his book, Miracles. I would have to say that I disagree with that. I think there is, without heading into this place of saying, I think they should be as normal as eating bread or cereal, I think that there's something to say, there's some reason to say, I think miracles are for today, and not only are they for today, but we're supposed to be the carriers of that. And let me, let me, let me show you why I think that, and you can wrestle with it for yourself. John 14, verse 11. Believe me when I say, this is Jesus talking, believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. Jesus said, look, if you let it be a sign, if you let it point to me, it will. If you've made up your heart, mind, and your heart to not believe, then it won't. But if, let it. Believe because of it. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing, and he will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. What he says in verse 12 is anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. That's a pretty broad anyone. He says, look, if you want to, if you're living in me the way I'm living in my Father, then you get to be in on this. I think maybe a way to say it is that we become, we are agents of God's invasion. That Jesus is saying, look, I am the one who started this invasion of the kingdom of God, this invasion into human affairs. I'm the one who started it. I am the one who did it best and most perfectly. But you know what? I'm leaving the continuation of that work to you. You and me, we are now agents of the same invasion. We are carriers of the kingdom. We're the ones that we can say, you know what? It's, it's at work in me. And just like John used that word erga to say the works of Jesus demonstrated who he was, demonstrated that God is at work in him. Likewise, the works that we do demonstrate that God's in us. I wonder sometimes, and I was talking with a guy, I meet with a couple of guys every other Sunday morning just to talk about life and discipleship and read the scriptures together. And One of them said to me, he said, I, I, how many things in my life am I attempting that really require God to break in and do? And I used to hear that, I'll be honest with you, I used to hear that when I was in college and I used to think, oh, does that mean like, dream the impossible dream I'll be a millionaire by 30 and I never had that one but you know people sort of fill in the plans like when they say well dream God-sized dreams and a lot of times you fill that in with like specific like platforms or opportunities or whatever I don't think it means any of that I think what I'm learning is God-sized dreams are dreams that your friend's marriage would stay intact God-sized dreams are that your children continue to walk with the Lord for the rest of their life when they're out of your house there are plenty of God-sized dreams that require God to do them. And if we're saying, okay, if I want to be a carrier, if I really am in him and he's in the Father, and if we're all in each other and we're abiding in all this stuff, then, I, then are any of my works coming out of me that are actually things that are quite 
miraculous. That doesn't mean that you walk to, you know, the local cemetery and start calling up, you know, and be kind of, I don't know, maybe, I, I don't, you know. But I think it happens all the time. I think of the Works family sitting down with the Murrays and saying, our family forgives your family. Oh, my gosh. If that isn't a, 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 a work, a demonstration of the miraculous at work in them, I don't know what is. I think of, and by the way, when Luke says, he, when Luke has Jesus saying, you can say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, right? You know what he says it right after? He says it in response to the disciples saying, increase our faith. And you know why the disciples say increase our faith? Because Jesus just told them to forgive seven times, 70, all this stuff. In other words, I, I, we think about mountains that need to be moved, and a lot of us are like, well, I need this debt paid. No, and all that's fine. It's okay. That, that's your mountain. But sometimes a mountain is a mountain of unforgiveness. And it takes a miracle to get over that mountain too. And it takes the miraculous at work in us to say, I forgive you. And it takes the inbreaking of God to say that. It absolutely does. Are there things in our lives that we recognize I need God to break into this situation? I'm beyond myself. I'm out of my depths. I felt that way loads since the service started. I, felt, I feel that way almost every day. What am I doing? I'm in over my head. I can't, I, I can't come up with clever sermons to change families or help marriages or rescue kids. I, I, I'm not that good. But I know that I'm counting on the miraculous. I'm counting on the supernatural. I'm counting on God breaking in through me, through you, through each of us to one another, breaking through and bringing the supernatural. I'm counting on that. Why do we want miracles? Why do we want it? There were lots of people in Jesus' day that wanted miracles for different reasons. Satan, in Matthew 4, wanted, wanted Jesus to do miracles so that he could razzle-dazzle, right? Hey, go to the temple, throw yourself down, do this, you know how to do that? Dazzle. And I wonder if sometimes that's in us, right? We want the miracles because we just want to be that church that's dazzling people, that church that makes it on CNN, or that church that does this or that. We at New Life can say, we've been that, we don't like that very much. It's overrated, really. The desire to razzle, you know, Jesus never did a miracle when people wanted to be dazzled. Didn't do it. He said, no, I'm not doing it. Give us a sign, they said. Luke 11. Luke eleven twenty nine. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, this is a wicked generation. It asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. He never, Jesus never did a miracle to the best that I can find. He never did a miracle to dazzle a crowd and he never did a miracle to prove the existence of God or prove himself as God. Anytime they said, you're a miracle, you, you say you're the son of God, then do this, give us a sign. He'd say, mm-mm, not like that. In fact, they said it to him when he was on the cross, you remember? If you really are, then call angels, do this. I mean, he could have called angels, not to take him down maybe, but at least to sing or do something. <laughs> like, hey, 
Look, I'm not, I'm not getting off the cross because this is my mission, but I'll just call angels just to show you that I can. He doesn't do it. He doesn't do miracles to dazzle, and he doesn't do miracles uh, to prove. Why does Jesus do miracles? At least four times in the Gospels, this phrase shows up. And Jesus was moved by compassion. And Jesus was moved by compassion. I, I, I wonder if this whole fascination with miracles, if, if some of us need to rewind a little bit and say, why do I want this? And maybe we need to say first and foremost, God, give me compassion. Give me compassion. I want my heart to break for the people who are, I know who are around me. And I'm praying for a miracle not because I want to be whatever. I'm praying for a miracle because I love them and I know that unless you break in in a very specific way, this is not going to end well, at least on earth. I think that is our reason for talking about this. It's compassion. No more, no less. So what is it? What is it that we're needing? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes as we close this tonight? Think in big terms about a miracle. Some of you, it really might be something physical. Some of you, it's something, you know, financial. For some of you, it's, it's a friend or maybe your own marriage. Maybe a child. What is it that you say, God, I just want you, I need you to break in to this specific particular situation. And I'm asking you for it. You said to ask. Several of you in the room are connected with uh, Compassion International and you're aware of David Hames who's still trapped in a hotel rubble somewhere in Haiti. Several of you are burdened in your heart for that. Let's pray for that as a touch point to pray for all the different situations, devastation. I want us to pray in two ways tonight. One, to pray for those specific things where we're saying, God, break in, God, break in, God, break in. But I also want us to pray in this other way that says, God, make me a carrier of this. Make me a carrier of the supernatural. Let me be a person that, that just, you know, in a very normal way, says, God, because I'm in you and you're in me, do miraculous things through me, whether it be the unlikeliest act of service or kindness or forgiveness or gentleness or generosity like James was talking about tonight, the act of generosity that just sort of came out of that friend of his. What is it that we can be carriers of God's invasion, that God would use us to break in to the lives of those around? Jesus, you said, if we ask in your name, if we ask for the things that you are doing and line ourselves up in it, that we get to participate in this. 
God, all of us at some level, we want to participate in your reign, your rule coming to earth. We all do. Some of us are thinking about marriages that are hurting. Some of us are thinking about kids that are hardened. Some of us are thinking about jobs that are difficult. Some of us are thinking about illnesses. And God, we do ask you to break in, break into those situations, would you? We're so glad for the hope of heaven. We're so glad for the hope of the restoration, the remaking of all things that's coming. We're so glad for that. But God, we'd like to see your kingdom break in here and now. We'd like to see your kingdom break in through us. God, this week, would you make us more aware than we've been before of our neighbors, of our friends, of our colleagues, of our people around us that, you know, need an inbreaking of, of, you, of your life, your presence. Make us aware of those situations and help us to be carriers of it. Help us to be carriers of it. God, we do pray for a miracle even as this rescue work is underway in Haiti. God, that we know that there is no heart that's more broken about this than yours. That there's no one who's aching more than you. And we do say, we do long for your coming again to end this. We make it all. But God, even here and now, Help them to rescue people. Help them to rescue lives. Help them to get aid to the places that aid needs to get to. Help them to provide order and, and, and some sense of, 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 of order in the midst of what's going on. And Lord, for this friend, this, this man, David Hames, who's a friend of some in this room, Lord, we join our voices and we lift up this child of yours, God. Give him breath. Give him life. Sustain him. Lead them to him. Do a miracle. Do a miracle. Help us not to be people that are afraid from talking or praying or asking for miracles, but God, help us to be convinced that breaking into our world is who you are. It's what you do. Thank you that you came looking. Thank you that you came searching. Thank you for who you are. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's all thank God, everybody. Amen.